good to be back. It's good to have you all here. As I was thinking about last, uh, these last couple of weeks, you know, the Farrell Mennonite Church exists to glorify God by equipping believers to advance the gospel. And last weekend was about equipping believers. That's why we invested so much time. And last weekend was about equipping believers from, from, from all over the world. You know, there were brothers from Pakistan. There were, there were um, Christians from Ecuador and Africa and Spain and Turkey and places like Texas and Oregon and New Mexico and, and the hills of eastern Kentucky. And we all came together so that the church could be equipped. And, and all of you played a part of that. You know, we, we, we served the church last weekend so that they could be equipped. The broader church, the Church of Conservative Mennonite Conference. You know, we cared for children and we prepared food. Actually, 4,000 meals are around there and 1,000 pounds of chicken. We parked cars and we ushered people and we put up tents and, and we cleaned tables. We, the people of Fairlawn and, and the churches in our community in a sense, wash the feet of our brothers and sisters by serving them. And you know, it was a beautiful thing to watch, to see so many of you serving unselfishly, picking up trash, putting up tents, cooking food, serving. And I'd just like to say thanks for the part that you played, for everything that you all did, and and thank you for attending. It always blessed my heart to see somebody from our church there at this event that we worship together with the bigger church, with our conference. And so I would just like to say thank you for the part that you played. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation, the Revelation chapter 2, verses uh, 12 to 17, if you would turn with me there. We're talking about the church at Pergamum. And, you know, this morning as I was sitting here, um, there's one word for this message that I will warn you. This is heavy. And as we get into the book, you'll understand why. Now, I want you to imagine yourself, because the way that John wrote um, as he received this message from, from Jesus... He wrote it so that it could be taken to the churches that are addressed because Jesus had a message for each one of them. So imagine yourself, you are the church at Pergamum. You are sitting in a service and the messenger gets up, the person who the letter was written so that he could read it to the church. And I want you to close your eyes and I want you just to listen and wonder, and, and in your heart, try to understand what the church at Pergamum must have felt after they heard this message. It says, To the angel at the of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in the city where Satan lives. And you're probably thinking, 
a little bit of a rough start, sort of a harsh introduction, but, but it sounds really good. We've, we've been faithful. You know, we have endured through a lot of hard things. But then he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balaam to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Hmm. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. Father, would you teach us here at Farallon this morning what you want us to learn from the church in Pergamum? Lord, help us to look deeply within ourselves and see what is there. Maybe allow your word to penetrate us and to change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Chuck Colson, who, was, uh, who went to prison because of the, the Watergate scandals back in the early 70s, and in prison, Chuck Colson got saved and, and uh, began, a, began prison fellowship, a ministry to prisoners, but did a lot of writing about the church. I want to read to you something that Colson wrote about the church as it relates to the church in Revelation. It's an introduction to a Bible that I have, but Colson writes this. While the church may seem to be experiencing a season of growth and prosperity, it is failing to move people to commitment and sacrifice. The hard truth is that we have substituted an institutionalized religion for the life-changing dynamic of a living faith. For most of us, the church is a building where we assemble to worship. Its ministries are the programs, and we get involved in its mission. Its mission is to meet the needs of parishioners, and its servants are the professional clergy we hire to shepherd us. Church growth has come to refer much more to things as location, marketing, architecture, programs, headcounts, than to the maturity of the body of Christ. When compared to previous generations of believers, we seem among the most thoroughly at peace with our culture, the least adept at transforming society, and the most desperate for meaningful faith. Our existence is confused, our mission is obscured, and our existence as a people is in jeopardy. Worst of all, our leaders know it. 
and seem unable or unwilling to do anything about it. In light of this, we should not be surprised that while plenty of people are still walking through the doors of the church, secularism reigns as the dominant worldview in American culture. It is a hard thing to imagine and a more urgent or critical task than the recovery and restoration of the biblical view of the church. That's a pretty sobering summary that Colson writes about the church. And I would ask us at Fairlawn, I would ask myself as a leader at Fairlawn, does this apply to us? As we read about the church in Pergamum, does that church, does it resonate with us? Is this who we are? You know, the first two letters that we, that we read, they, they're, they're, the, the introduction was fairly encouraging. He says these, in, in Ephesians, he talks about their good deeds and, and their perseverance and that they can't tolerate wicked men. He says, but you've lost your first love. And in the second letter to Smyrna, he gives a, a nice introduction. But the introduction here in, in, to the church in Pergamon isn't a very friendly introduction. Imagine getting a letter that says, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. This is not so encouraging. Jesus identifies himself as the one with a sharp, double-edged sword, and we see it in his description in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, and we see it again in Revelation 19. It says, out of his mouth comes a, a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. So the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth. It refers to the word of God. It's a symbol of truth and, it, and of penetrating authority that he will bring and judge those who are defiling the church at Pergamum. The sword is a symbol of the word of Christ that separates believers From conformity to the word that separates us as we, as we read it and listen to it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And, and Jesus says, I'm coming with the sword of my word to judge you, people of Pergamum. Coming to use my authority. So Pergamum is not only in danger of the people around them, but Pergamum is in danger of Jesus coming and exerting authority and judgment upon them because they've not been willing to separate themselves from the culture from which they've been redeemed. They're comfortable with where they live. They're comfortable with the sin that's around them. 
Now, Jesus gives them a praise. He praises the church. He says, look, I know where you live. You live in Satan's town. And that's the, now, what exactly does it mean? I know where you live where Satan has his throne. If you do a little bit of study about the church at Pergamum, it was filled with idol worship and some, some incredible temples. They worshipped Athena there, and behind Athena was the altar of Zeus. Zeus Sotar is actually, and so Zeus the Savior, and, and, and this, there was, it was this magnificent altar that, that was 120 feet wide and 112 feet long, and, and it was 40 feet high, and it was a, a monumental colonnade that stood right at the center of Pergamum. And there people went to worship. They had a hospital that people went to. It was, it was dedicated to the, to the god of... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Asclepius. And what happened in this hospital or in this altar is is they believed that snakes, Asclepius was, was, a, was a snake god, and so they believed that when they would go to this temple and they would lay on the floor, if snakes came and slithered over them, they would be healed. Actually, if you look at the uh, American Medical Association, if you look at their logo, it's this snake. So they worshipped Zeus, they worshipped Athena, they worshipped Asclepius, and but, but more than anything, they, they, they worshipped the emperors. Emperor worship was started here in Pergamum. The first altar was built in 29 BC to honor Augustus. And so, so emperor worship was the thing of the day in Pergamum. And everybody was expected to worship the emperor. The emperors believed that they were God, that they were the savior of their people. And every citizen once a year was expected to offer incense and declare Caesar Lord. So I see the combination of this, of all of this idolatry and, and, and all of this worship of, of the emperors why Jesus would say, this is the throne of Satan. This is where Satan lives. I know you live in a place that is controlled by Satan. And despite all this demonic power and all this influence, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. He's saying, look, you've got all this stuff around you. You've got all this opportunity to, to, um, to worship these idols, and yet you stay true to my name. They never wavered. And so Jesus praises them for their endurance under even under fierce persecution. It says, even the days of Antipas, my witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Antipas, Antipas may, may have been their pastor, but um, tradition says that Antipas was, he was roasted to death inside of a brass bull because of his faith. You see, 
in this dark city, they demanded allegiance from their citizens. So Christians were to leave their faith at home. They're supposed to be keep it packed in their house. They're not supposed to bring it into the public sphere. They were to worship the king. They were to worship their leader, who is the head of the nation. Jesus said, you stood strong. You refused to deny my name. He says, great job, church at Pergamum, for your faithfulness. But after saying all of these good things, in verse 14 he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. In spite of all your faithfulness, I have these things that we need to address. You've got people that are being sucked into the sin from which they've been delivered from. You have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Y'all remember the story of Balaam? Balaam and the talking donkey children? Go home and tell your mom and dad to read you the story of Balaam and the talking donkey. In, in Numbers chapters 22 to 25, Balaam was a prophet. And Balak was, or, yeah, he was a prophet, a false prophet. Balak was the king of Moab. And Balak knew that the children of Israel were coming through Moab. And they had been destroying every other nation that they came through. And he was fearing the coming of the Israelites. And so he, he petitions Balaam, who was a prophet for hire. You paid him enough, he would come and prophesy. And he wanted Balaam to cast a spell to curse the children of Israel. And through a series of, of, of events, actually Balaam blesses Israel four times and 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 but but he does something he doesn't ever curse the children of israel he pulls Balak aside and says, says he says tell let me tell you what you can do get all of your women together entice them have them entice the, 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 the Israelite men, and they will begin to intermarry, and then you can get them. You can get them to, to worship your gods by intermarrying, by, by diluting their belief system. And so they pulled all these men into this idolatry and immorality of the Moab people. See, the curse didn't work, but the corruption did. Their union with the world with darkness, with false gods, with, or with immorality, 
overpowered the children of Israel. His plan was successful. He says, Jesus says to the church, he says, you have some people who are acting like Balaam, who are encouraging your people, who are encouraging the people in the church to engage in idolatrous kinds of things, to to engage in immorality. They're seducing you to go back to the very culture from which you've been delivered from. You see, because there were people from the church in Pergamum who were attending pagan feasts, participating in all kinds of immorality, and then coming to church. Apparently, the church never took action to confront or correct them. He says, you are giving in to the teachings of Balaam and to the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. That was a form of Gnostic teaching where there is a separation from the spirit and the physical, and, and the physical doesn't matter because God is spirit, so you can do anything with your body Because God is spirit. It was just a way of explaining away sin. Of allowing sin. Of of being able to, to, to engage in these immoral acts that were happening in the temples. He says, you're giving in to those things. You come to church on Sunday morning, but you go out and you live like the world the rest of the week. They were justifying this immoral living. Is that us? You know, do, do, we, do we come to church on Sunday morning and we worship God, we raise our hands, we love good worship, we sing and, and we engage and interact with each other, and then we walk out the doors and we look just like the Nicolaitans. We look just like the world. Nothing about us is different. From the people around us. Nothing. We watch the same things on TV. We go to the same movies. We allow our minds to be defiled. We engage in coarse joking. And when we go to work or when we go to the places that we are, or whether it's school, where nobody can tell a difference. There's nothing different about us than there is with the world. Is that who we are? What about you is different than the people you rub shoulders with every day? What about me is different when I go out and engage the world around me? See, we we, we love our culture. 
We love doing the things that the world loves to do. But we still come to church on Sunday mornings. And we still check off the, the check off the box and 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 we say, you know, I, I got that out of the way. But nothing changes. Nothing's different. There's no burden, no urgency to tell people about Jesus. Because we're we're so consumed with us. not separate. They weren't separated. And Jesus gives a command. He says, repent! Turn and go the other way. Stop tolerating worldly compromise. As he says, otherwise, I will come to you and I will fight them. With the sword of my mouth. Now imagine sitting at the church of Pergamum and this letter is written and it's being, as it's being read and you as a Nicolaitan or a person that is engaging in the types of things that, that, that Balaam had the children of Israel engaging in that you're just a Sunday morning worshiper and nothing about you has changed. Imagine hearing that, I will come to you and I will fight against them. Those are heavy, hard, harsh words coming out of the mouth of our Savior. You see, the church here is on the brink of judgment from Jesus himself. I understand that, that, that we must forgive one another and we, we, we must um, not expect people to be perfect and, and we must give grace and extend forgiveness. But we must never tolerate sin as being acceptable, overlooking it. Or we will be in the same place. We will be the church at Pergamum. Caroline, is, is this us? It's heavy. But then Jesus makes a promise. It says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So here's good news. He says, To him, who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna 
I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. So to those who are overcomers, by virtue of their true faith, to true believers, he's saying, I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you some hidden manna. And this hidden manna, I believe, speaks about communion with the Lord. Those who eat the living bread and drink the living water, it says, will never thirst again. Jesus said in John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. So we will eat the manna. We will eat with Jesus. And I'll give you a white stone. And nobody knows for sure what this means, but one of the, the, the things that, that I read was, in that day, athletes, when they won a race, when they finished first in their event, they were given a white stone. And on that white stone, their name was engraved. And, and that white stone was their entrance into a great feast that was provided at the end of the event. And so if you had a white stone, you gained entry into this great feast. So... Could it be that this identifies that, that, that you are an overcomer if you receive this white stone? You are more than a conqueror. You have complete access to all the lavish provision that God has for us in eternity. And then he says, and I will give you a new name. I will give you a new identity. So when we come into glory, we, as overcomers, will have white stones to enter into the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll have a completely new, eternal, perfect identification as children of God. But Jesus says this is only for those who overcome. It is only for those who are faithful. It's only for those who don't compromise their faith. I want you to reflect. I want you to think about on my notes at the end of um, your, your handout, I have four things for you to think about. And you'll talk about this next week in your adult Bible fellowship. But what would Jesus have, what praises would Jesus have for the church at Fairlawn? I can think of lots of things that, 
that I could think of. What rebukes would Jesus have for the church at Fairlawn? And you know, as a, as a pastor, that, that's a pretty sobering question. What rebukes? Because it reflects on me as a leader. What commands would he give us? Then the last one is one I want you to really to reflect on just personally this week. What might Jesus' words of praise, rebuke, and commands be to you as a part of the body here at Fairlawn or wherever you may attend? I think we have to look pretty, very seriously and with great humility, we have to evaluate ourselves. Because I really believe, and I say this with, with, with great love for this body, I think we're really comfortable with our culture. I think we're really comfortable with, our, with what our culture does. I think we're really comfortable going the places that our culture goes and doing the things that they do. And when we become really comfortable with that, we lose our ability to make a difference because we're no different than them. And yet through Jesus Christ, we have something incredible to offer our world. It's going to be hard? Absolutely. Is it going to cause persecution? Could. Will people make fun of us? Yeah, they will. But it's what we're commanded to do. To live differently. How will you live differently as a follower 